feels really good to be back among family. Uh, I can't tell you how how different it is to walk into a place and be known. Um, and you really don't miss it until you walk into a place and you feel unknown, right? And so coming back here, it's been, it's been a treat to see, like, look someone in the eyes and have them see you and know you. It's like, um, honestly, it's, a, it's just like this warm feeling. And I know we're at Thanksgiving, and so I just wanted to share that with you. That's how I feel when I come in this room with all of you. Um, today we'll be speaking on Mark chapter 5. The question posed up there isn't really the main point of the sermon. It's just the intro question. So I'll read through Mark chapter 5. If you have a Bible, um, you can follow along, but we'll be in verses 1 through 20 today. Um, bit of a strange text, but this is the one that God put on my heart. So Mark chapter 5. There'll also be uh, scripture on the screen if you need to follow along that way. Mark chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And, and he and they begged him, they being the demon, they begged him saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, Jesus gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbered about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned there. If you thought we were done, no, we're not. And the, herdsmen, <laughs> and the herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in the country. And the people came to see it, see what, what it is that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region And he was getting into the boat, and the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus did not permit him. He said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Let's pray. Father... You know more than anyone the amount of hurdles that came before this text, God. You know how much it took for the people sitting in these pews to get here today. You, t- you know how much it took for me to get to this point, standing in front of everyone here today. But God, even beyond all of that, you have something to say to your people And so, right now, Father, I ask that you use me 
Father, this is not a speech. It's not a tech talk. This is a sermon from the mouth of God. And I pray that you use my mouth to communicate to your people something so real to them, God. That it's just not another sermon. That they won't be leaving these pews the same as they came in, Father. Use the words. Use the illustration. Use the scriptures, God, to convict our hearts today of what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. First sermon back, going straight for demons. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> if you know anything about the Gospel of Mark, Mark was likely the first Gospel written. And so Mark is Peter's disciple. Peter, you know, Peter, the guy who walked on water, almost drowned. Peter, uh, the, the rock in which I'll build my church. Peter, the, the guy who denied Jesus three times. Peter, so that guy had a little pupil, a disciple, a right-hand man, if you will, and his name was Mark. And John Mark wrote down the first gospel. And so the first gospel, the unique thing about it is that it's very concise, right? And it's very raw and it's very real. And this story is as real as it gets, right? We're talking about a demon-possessed man. So before we go on, I know that um, I understand that New Yorkers have a broad category for crazy. And so when you, st- you start talking about demons, you know, red flags start going up in our heads. And the temptation is, because we're New Yorkers, we know how to deal with crazy. We dismiss it quickly and move on. Like you've done this on the subway. Someone sits down next to you and starts talking to themselves. What do you do? You lower your headphones to make sure they're not on their AirPods. No, 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 they're crazy. And then what do you do? You pretend like you're getting off at the next stop, and then you move on, right? And so as I was praying about this passage, I'm like, God, are you serious, this one, really? Um, I, know, I was thinking, okay, so how do, how do I contextualize this in such a way that it doesn't seem so crazy to the people sitting in these pews? And here's the conclusion that I came to. This story is crazy, Right? There, there, is, there is no rationalizing it, and that was the intent. It is supposed to be radical. Mark, who's writing this gospel, is writing it to highlight that there are forces of darkness in this world that are so strong that no human power can overcome them or fight them alone. And he does that to portray that, there, that this Jesus that we're dealing with is no ordinary human, right? There's quite literally another spectrum of power, and at the very top of it, says Jesus. And so if you're confused, concerned, not sure how to process this passage, rest assured you're in a good place. Because you know who else didn't know how to process what was going on? The disciples. Matter of fact, these guys, there's a prequel to this story. These guys just got off a boat with Jesus. Barely survived the boat. You remember that, 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 that story with Jesus calms the storm? So the disciples get in the boat, and Jesus is like, all right, guys, we're going to the other side. I'm going to take a nap. So Jesus goes to sleep. And they're, you know, it's in a nice little Galilee Sea. And then suddenly this big storm arises, right? And they're like, Jesus, wake up. We're going to die. Right? And so Jesus wakes up and he's like, peace, be still. And the whole place, the sea calms. But when he does that, the disciples realize something. What kind of man is in our boat? First they were afraid of the sea. Now they are really confused about the man in their boat. And the last question, or the last piece of dialogue we hear in Mark chapter 4, which leads up to this story, is what kind of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And that's where we pick our story up today. Who is this man, Jesus 
and what does it mean for us today at New Hope on November 24th, 2019. Okay, so there's three parts to this uh, story. Um, Part one, I'm going to talk about the the power of evil. Part two, I'm going to talk about the power of Jesus. At part three, you know I'm halfway done. That's a preacher joke. You're going to get it later. Um, And then we're, we're going to talk about responding to the power of Jesus. So that brings us to verse number one. Let's read it again. Um, so they came out to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and there Jesus stepped. Jesus had stepped out of the boat. Immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one had, no one had the power to bind him, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. Right? And so Mark is very clear in this particular set of verses. He's trying to set this up, that this man is not acting on his own. There's some outside force that is controlling him and compelling his actions. This is supernatural. I don't know, I've been to the gym and I've seen a lot of strong men, but none of them were breaking chains. So there was something supernatural going on in this man that is causing him to literally break every single restraint the people had tried. And Mark does this and he emphasizes this to, to, to portray the point that there lacked a sufficient human intellect or human strength to contain this force. This was, in fact, a demonic force that was so powerful. Um, and even it wasn't even any ordinary de- demonic force. This was a legion demon, right? A legion demon. And so try, I try to think about how to power scale it for you guys. And so the legion demon would be like the all-star team. All-star team. And a regular demon would be like you know, um, like the Knicks. And so, so just to, just to get it, (laughs) just to give you a little context, the Legion demon is like the powerful, the most powerful ones there are. It's like LeBron, Kevin Durant, sorry, I don't even know these players. I don't even know why I'm trying. So they're like the most powerful set. It's like Jonathan Mason and Andy Bertadotti and a Jay all in the same team versus, you know, me and Shamar paddling our boats, right? So it's, it's like, it's like that, right? And so basically what I want you to see here very clearly is that when Satan gets a hold of a person, his goal is to destroy the image of God in that person. And so here's what he does. Here's what it looks like, right? He drives you into social isolation. And it's like one of the first and very important steps because he doesn't want you to be surrounded by people who might remind you of the power of God. So he drives you crazy into social isolation. And so what does he do with this man, right? He drives him out of his mind. He's walking around naked and ashamed and everyone knows him as the crazy person. I don't know if you know what that's like to be known as the crazy person. I'm not saying I do either, but I'm, I'm just saying it's, it's a very... It's a very isolated thing when everyone's looking at you and have a certain opinion of you that you don't hold of yourself and whether or not you believe that opinion about yourself sooner or later you start to feel isolated and so this man is driven into isolation and where does he live he's now driven among the tombs as though he were dead the second thing that satan does is that he engages the person in self-destructive tendencies In this case, the man was literally cutting himself with stone. And cutting himself with stone was destroying his outside physical body, but it was was portraying what was really going on inside with his soul. Like there was a display of that man's like destruction of the thing that God cares about in that man. And through isolation and self-destruction, this man is then condemned to die. How do we know? 
You know, because the people left him to dwell among the graveyard. They literally considered him hopeless, as though there was nothing left. And the truth is, as much as I tried to find a hope for this man, by human standards, he was hopeless. Like, he literally was hopeless. And I say that just to demonstrate to you what a stronghold looks like. Like, very vividly, you see a picture of this man and his life. And you might think, I'm not like that. But you got to understand, this guy didn't start out like that. He likely, if this... This little cup could represent his life and the water, you know, his soul, his spirit. He likely started out like this, clean, drinkable, decent, normal. This is just regular tap water. I would drink this. If, yeah, so anyway, so he likely started out like this. And then something comes along and he lets... The devil get a foothold in one area of his life. And you know, one area of your life, not that noticeable. It's just swirling around there at the bottom. No one's going to see it. It's not above the surface. And then he lets another area of his life, the devil, get a foothold. And another, and another, and another, until this cup becomes very heavy. And there's so much heaviness to it that sometimes the man himself... He's not able to pour out in the same way as before. Because take a look at this. If he tries to pour out, you know what's going to happen? As he gives the devil more and more of a foothold. If he tries to pour out, what's going to be revealed is at, is at the bottom. I don't know if you're getting this. But basically what I'm trying to say is that some of us let the devil in to our lives. in in areas of our life, in little pockets, in little pieces of our life, right? But on the surface, we look calm and ready, right? We look like nothing is going on 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 the surface. And so some of us would even paint the cup to hide the little things at the bottom of our life to show like nothing is going on. We take pictures of the cup and post it on Instagram. And it's not dirty water. It's just rustic looking, you know? It's just, it's just great. But all the while, knowing deep down inside... We are weighed down. We're heavier than we're supposed to be. Um, And then we feel stuck. We feel stuck because we try to pour out. We go to pour out. We go to serve God. But we realize that we can't pour out fully. Because if we pour out fully, we're going to reveal what's really there. So we go to share in small group. But we realize if we really tell people who we are, they might reject what they see. If we really reveal the things and the strongholds in our life, we're afraid of what others might think of us. And so we don't pour out. We pour out a little bit. A little bit. Give my tides. I might come to summer blast. I'm going to bring the casserole to small group. And that's, all right, all right, and then Sunday, I come back, Jonathan Nason pours back into me, and I come back, and then I pour my little back, a little bit back, and a little bit back, and we play this game of pouring a little, and a little, and a little. But I want you to understand that there does come a point where you let the devil in 
so much that there's sometimes there's nothing that you can humanly do to help another person. And I'm not saying that you should ever stop. As Christians, you should keep going. If you see someone going down a path, you keep going. You keep going after them. You pray for them. You ask God to help them. But there sometimes comes a point where the no counseling, no accountability, no charity can help a person. In instances like this, with this man, the situation became so grave that it literally required a moment of divine intervention. It required access to a power greater than our own. I'll never forget, I, I got a call when I was a sophomore in college from a friend of mine, and he's like, Nick, hey, you're my last hope. And I'm like, last, last hope? What do you mean last hope? I come to find out he was walking the bridges, right? Considering jumping. And I, I was out of my mind. I didn't know what to do. So I, I was just like, hey, where are you? I'm going to come find you right now. Where are you? Tell me where you are. So I ran to him. I got my way over there. And I started talking to him, talking to him. And like, you know when you look at someone in their eyes and the person you knew wasn't there? It was that look, right? You're looking at them and you're like, where is my friend? And I keep telling him, I'm like, hey, man, you don't want to do this. Like, you have your whole life ahead of you. You're like, imagine you're going to get married someday. You're going to have kids. Like, we're going to have a family. And then you can play with my kids. And I'm going to play with your kid. And none of this got through to him. And the whole time, and I'm like, I'm looking at him. I'm like, hey, Daniel, can we pray together? Hey, can we pray? Can I, can I pray for you? He's like, no, 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 don't pray for me. No, I don't want to pray. And I got to a point where I was like, God, I got no, no stories left to tell this guy. And I don't know what to do. And so at that moment, he was sitting down, believe it or not, on a church bench. I got him to sit on a church bench. And then I said, you know, Daniel, I'm just going to pray for you. And I started praying in the name of Jesus, like for the, the peace of God, for the, for the righteousness of God, for the restoration. And later on, Daniel, thank God that night he did not jump. We're actually meeting up for lunch next week, which is a blessing. Um, but later on, Daniel told me something which, which got my attention. He's like, Nick... None of the stories that you told me, because I told some good stories. I was like, man, you're going to be my best man at my wedding. It's going to be awesome. Like, you can't die. Like we're, like, we're tight. Like, I need you. And he's like, none of that mattered. It's when you started praying the name of Jesus over me that I felt something lift. And I say that because there comes a point where you need access to a power that is so much greater than your own. You as a person are only limited in your ability, but through the power of God, you have the ability to force darkness and command it to leave. And that brings us to verse 6, part 2. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out in a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. So Jesus enters the situation and immediately what does the demon do? He runs to him, he runs to him and he falls down. Literally the uncontrollable, uncontrollable that Mark described, remember the guy that was breaking chains, uncontrollable, untamable, becomes subdued at the presence of Jesus. So very clearly, Mark is showing like, hey, I'm setting this guy up to be like, oh, no one can stop him. No chains, no fetters, nothing, shackles, nothing. And then introduce Jesus and immediately, not even at, a, at a, like a wrestling, just immediately he, the demon runs and is subdued when the presence of Jesus enters. He does this to say that the presence of Jesus orients everything around him. The power hierarchy is made clear. What was once uncontrollable now bows and begs for Jesus' mercy. And so the very question we opened this sermon is, 
sermon with is answered in verse 7. Remember the question? The disciples asked, Who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? Who is this man? Believe it or not, there is no, no more dialogue after that until the demon speaks. And you know what the demon reveals? He reveals the identity of Jesus. And we read it. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? This is how epic Jesus is. He's like, I'm not even going to tell my disciples who I am. I'm going to walk into my enemy, enemy's territory, and I'm going to let my enemies call out my true identity. That is the power of Jesus. That is the ability of God to say, I am so high up on the power hierarchy that even my enemies respect it. That is the power that you have access to. It is a picture of what happens when light steps into darkness and drives it out. Look, the essence of what the demon's crying here, he's like, leave me alone. Leave me alone. Don't bother me, Jesus. Get out of my territory. Get out of, get out of my, my way. Don't come near me. The devil knows that in the presence of Jesus, he has no authority over, over you. So his goal is to convince you to run from that presence. Because if you run from the presence, then he knows he has a foothold over your life. And so the way that Jesus demonstrates that you fight this foothold is that you invite him in. Because as soon as he enters, everything else submits to his authority. Verse 8, we read on. For he was saying to them, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside. So they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he went and gave permission. So he gave permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. So what happened? Jesus, the, the demon's like, hey man, um, 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 you send me into the pigs. Don't, 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 just, just send me into the pigs. And Jesus is like, okay, fine, go into the pigs. And the pigs, he, the demons come out of the man, rush into the pigs, and the pigs fell, go over a cliff, fall over, and all perish, right? And so a lot of people ask, what's the significance of the pigs? The pigs, does it make sense? Jesus, why do you hate animals? Are you, are you, are you like pro, not pro-animals or, or animals cruelty? No, here's the thing. In, in that time, in that day, in that age, what happens is that the pigs were considered ceremonially unclean. Right? For the Jewish people, pigs represented uncleanliness. So Jesus is casting out that which is unclean in the man, the spirit, into that which is unclean, the pigs. And not only is he casting it out, he's sending the pigs into destruction. Right? So he's, he's flexing his power all the way. Right? And so what I want you to understand here is not only do the pigs represent uncleanness, but they're in a Gentile region. Gentile meaning non-Jewish, meaning like me or you, not anyone who doesn't have a Jewish heritage. Right? And so he is, he is saying that these people, they bred this livestock. So this livestock was of value to them. So this is money, right? So Jesus is demonstrating, hey, the value of this man's life who I'm restoring is so much greater than the pigs. It's so much greater than your livestock. It's so much greater than the value of your money. What I value so much more is restoring my son, my daughter, you, right? He's restoring this man and he's saying it's worth so much more to me than the value of any pigs. He's also demonstrating the destructive burden this man was under. Can you imagine 2,000 pigs rushing to their death? That was trapped inside of one man. Can you imagine the burden this, this man was carrying? 
And I know a lot of you are walking around with burdens. Look, the last thing that the pigs demonstrated was that restoration comes at a cost. And that, my friends, is a foretaste of what was to come because there was going to be true restoration that's coming later. Jesus was going to give his life so that you and I would no longer be burdened down by the burden of sin. And so he was giving a little foretaste to the people of like restoration comes, but it comes at a price. And a price that Jesus would later pay himself. And so, what do we learn? Well, when you have a stronghold, the way that you break the stronghold or restore the stronghold isn't to tip the cup over because then you would lose the whole person, right? The way you break the stronghold is you literally have to introduce something greater, the presence of something under which everything else will submit. And so when you introduce the presence of Jesus into a stronghold, he's literally able to not only break the stronghold, but every other demonic force, power, comes under his authority. And that which was unclean becomes restored. Right? And I I show that illustration because I know that saying the words, sometimes we forget the words, but I want you to picture that when Jesus enters the picture, everything else submits to his authority. Everything else submits to his authority. And that's why this sermon today is not about demons. It's not a sermon about demons. I know I've joked with many of you that we're going to be casting out some demons, but that's not true. This sermon is not about demons. See, our best, I read this this week, our best protection against demons is less preoccupation with demons and more preoccupation with the presence of God because it's the presence of God that reorients everything else in our life. See, outside of God himself, you know what the demons fear? They fear a man and woman that have been baked in the presence of God. Someone who has fasted and prayed and spent so much time studying the word and fellowshipping with people and loving God. The demons fear that person because that person has a hint of the presence of God and they submit to the presence of God immediately. And yet some of us, if we're being honest, have areas of our life where we deny God access. And on the surface, everything looks great. Looks fine. No one knows. But in secret, we're wishing someone would help. We're wishing someone would make the pain stop. We're wishing, we're honestly wishing for a hope. And that brings us to part three which is the response to Jesus' power. See, we all have a uh, decision and a choice to make in how we respond to Jesus. All of us have a choice to make. In this situation, there were two parties in particular whose Jesus' demonstrations of power required a response from. There is the people, meaning the townspeople, the herdspeople, the people who own the pigs, and then there's the man. You could make an argument for the disciples, but for this particular situation, let's take the people and let's take the man. Verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in the country, 
And the people came to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described it to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Think about how crazy that is. They saw their friend in his right mind and their first instinct is to ask Jesus to leave. You want to know why? Because what they saw wasn't just their friend. They saw their, the loss of their pigs. They saw the loss of something that they considered valuable. They saw Jesus as an authority that would disrupt their way of life. They saw Jesus as someone who they feared what he might do next. And not even so much what he might do next, but what he might ask of them. They feared how much he might ask of them. What it might cost them. And you know what they do? They ask him to leave. And the crazy thing about Jesus, and I, he's, he's so good. The crazy thing about him is that he grants their request. He leaves. He gets back in his boat and he leaves. And the reality is this. The presence of God does not dwell long where he's not welcomed. And so there are pockets in our life and you know what they are. I don't have to say them to you, but you know what they are that Jesus is asking for. You're saying, no, 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 not that. Not that. Anything but that. Not that, God. I'll give you this, I'll give you that, I'll give you a lot of it, but God's asking for that. These people showed up. These people listened. You can even say they were people like us. They come, they hear, but in the end, they silently reject Jesus and walk away. it is possible for you to show up and listen and still reject Jesus quietly. And I get it. I really do. Because I'm afraid of what he might ask me if I invite him into the deep and dark places. Because I conclude that if I give this up, it is a bad thing. And the reality is that no, no, it's the greatest thing that I could ever do. Because I'm not just giving it up, I'm getting Jesus. I'm getting the one under whose authority everything else Holds. And maybe I should have added more metal balls so you get the point. But you know, like the, the power of Jesus is, is the thing under which every other authority dwells, right? And there's nothing in Jesus that is above Jesus, right? Everything else in the earth, everything in my life, if it submits to that authority, then it is good. You get what I'm saying? If everything in my life submits to that authority, then regardless of what it looks like, if it looks like a failure to the world, it is still good because it's submitting to the highest authority. And that's how we have to define the sacrifices and the choices that we make. Hudson Taylor said it this way. He was a missionary to China. He's like, if Jesus is not Lord over all, he's not Lord at all. And that brings us to the flip side. 
which I suspect many of you may be on. And this, the worship team can come back up um, as we prepare for the close. The last person to respond to Jesus was the man. Right? This is a person who received radical transformation. We're talking night and day. We're talking crazy to sane. We're talking unclothed to clothed. Right? This is a person who received the kind of transformation that changes your life on the spot. And he longed to be with Jesus. The Greek word here is parakaleo. It's a desire. It's a longing. It's a deep desire pleading to be with Jesus. And he asked Jesus in verse 18. Let's read it together. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. He's begging Jesus that he might be with him. And he, being Jesus, did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. I'm hoping my worship team's coming back up. Um, it's all good. And thank you guys. And um, I always found it interesting when Jesus denies a good request. You ever ask Jesus for something good and he says no? Like, Jesus, I'm trying to follow you. Why are you telling me no? This man literally wanted to get back in the boat and go with Jesus. And God says no. No, no. You want to know why? Because the region this guy was in was a Gentile region. Meaning there were no one else in this region, no one else who had experienced what he had just experienced. And Jesus was getting back in the boat with 12 dudes who are going back to a Jewish region to preach to Jewish people. He already had help. But God uniquely chose this one man to do what? Reach his friends. And that stuck out to me. Because in a sense, I feel like God's called me home. For many of you who don't know, I was in Florida for the last year. Um, And I tried so hard to get plugged in there. I tried so many things. And the deeper I got, the more that I felt like God was just saying, no, no, I'm calling you home. Here's my point. The person who God transforms, he gives a calling to. Right? So each of you who've experienced Jesus, you have a calling. And if you don't know what it is, it is to make disciples of all nations, as simple as I can put it. Each of you, God has given friends. This man had friends who had not heard of the transformation that he had experienced. And Jesus told him, go and tell them. And I wonder, for every Daniel story, and I shared with you my friend Daniel, who didn't commit suicide that day. For every Daniel story, the unfortunate fact about my life, if I'm being brutally honest, For every Daniel story, I have two that didn't make it. It's a weird thing to bury friends in college who you had spiritual conversations with, but you didn't go all the way with. Who you held back a little because you weren't sure, you were uncomfortable. 
And it's a weird thing to go to their funeral and be like, Jesus, what, is, what did I do? When you experience radical transformation, the, the job and the calling is to go and share it, not with random strangers, but with your friends. And if you don't have friends who don't know Jesus, then you have to ask yourself the question, what did I set up my life to be that I don't meet people who don't know Jesus? Did I structurally create such a safe environment for my life that I have eradicated the need to ever make a single disciple? And if that's you, then you have to change. And that was me. That is me right now as we speak. So I'm changing things. Pray for me, y'all. I'm getting an apartment because I want to host people who don't know God so we can preach the gospel so they can hear the good news and respond. Because he said, go home and tell your friends what God has done for you. Father, I pray for these people right now. My brothers and sisters, I thank you for them, God. Many of them right now, Father, I know are like that man. They're burdened secretly. They're not sharing it with anyone right now. And I pray that you would break them even as they walk out of here. God, would you break them? Would you help them to invite you into those areas? If there's something they're holding on to and not letting go, something you've been asking them for years and years and years, I pray that today it would be the day that they say, yes, I let go. I give it back to you, God. And then for the flip side, for those of us, God, who have friends that have never heard of our transformation story, I pray that we would be the ones that tell them, God, inspire us, give us the gift to speak into their lives at the moments that matter, to share what you've done for us. And I pray that they would come to realize who you are as well. Father, I thank you for this church. Thank you for the people who work so hard. I thank you for our pastors, God who give their lives and pour out their lives for the benefit of this congregation. We pray that you bless them. Would you bless their families? Jesus, but ultimately, God, we pray for more of your presence in our life. We pray for a radical, transformative presence where we submit all of it to you. And we ask you, God, to walk with us step by step. In the name of Jesus, amen.